Every couple of years, Gallup, the research organization, reminds us that about two-thirds of American workers say they're either not engaged or they are actively disengaged at work. American workers forfeited nearly 50% of their paid vacation in 2017, and nearly 10% take no vacation days at all. According to a study by Glassdoor, the fear of falling behind at work is the number one reason people aren't using their vacation time. Like, I'll, I'll be seen as disloyal to the company if I use my vacation time. The conference board reports that 53% of Americans are currently unhappy at work. And then why? So, you know, the questions, of course, are why do you feel this way? Forbes reported that uh, CareerBuilder.com found that 58% of managers said they didn't receive any management training before starting their job as a manager. A Harvard Business Review survey revealed 58%, same number, of people say they trust strangers more than their own boss. Notice those numbers are the same, 58%. Maybe, they're, maybe it's the same uh, companies. 79% of people who quit their jobs cite lack of appreciation as their reason for leaving. As the saying goes, see if you can finish this, people don't leave companies, they leave bosses or managers. Have you heard that? Lee Branham, author of The Seven Hidden Reasons Employees Leave, revealed that 89% of bosses believe employees quit because they want more money. As much as any boss would love this statistic to be true, uh, it's simply not. Only 12% of employees actually leave the organization for more money. And what is the number one thing that employees say they want from their manager? Um, it's recognition. And so this particular article cited all over the world, actually, when, when employees are asked, what's the number one thing that you want at work or that you want from your boss? It's recognition. It's, it's appreciation of a job well done. And, it, and nothing else even comes close, not even higher pay, a promotion, autonomy, or training. So if you remember the hit, you know, lover boy from the 80s, everybody's working for the weekend. Apparently that's true. And it's true here, and it's also true around the world. So... Sometimes workplace drama comes in the form of drama with coworkers. You just feel like somebody has it out for you. You just can't get along. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the drama comes from the company itself. And it's like there's this corporate system at my work, and I, maybe I just don't fit, and I'm figuring that out. It's just getting more and more uncomfortable. Most of the time, the drama comes from a relationship with the boss. And so um, how do we deal with workplace drama when we feel like we're on this crazy train um, in all areas, whether it's coworkers or, you know, the company itself or, you know, most of the time with the boss? So first of all, if I asked you, what is your job? What do you do? What would your answer be? Now, of course, like I would, like all of us, we would all answer with the job title. Well, I'm, I'm this, or I do this at this Company. That would be the obvious answer that we would give. However, what if your actual work, your actual job, is something that is much, much bigger than that job title, than the answer that we would all give? What if, what if your job, your work, is much, much infinitely larger and more important than your specific job title. Another word for job or work is the word vocation. And vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio. And you can see 
you can hear the similarities to our word vocal. So if I asked you, what is your work? You, another way of asking that is, what is your vocation? And that comes from a word that is connected to speech, to talking, to, to saying something. And as you see, it means calling. Our vocation comes from the Latin word that means calling or, or vocare, to call. It carries the idea with it that somebody has called you. That your work is a calling because somebody has called to you. And that person or that whatever, that, that entity has called you and said you are gifted and equipped and skilled to do this particular thing in this world. Somebody has called to you something, whatever your worldview is here, somebody, something has called to you. It even come, it's almost like it's out from outside of you, right? Not almost, it is. Something has called to you. And, and they've looked at you and said, you can do this, 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 and this. And you were born with these gifts and this personality. And you picked up these skills. And you've had these mentors and these experiences and this education in your life. And all of those things go together. And some objective force sees that in you and has called you. You, to do something nobody else can do. They've called you specifically, called to you. You do this. And that's the meaning of the word, vocation. What if your work is far more than a job title? But it's, it's actually this huge thing where somebody has called to you because there are things that only you can do. Of course, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you want to be, we want to be here, that person is God. And the thought behind this historically is that God has called you to do what you do. And if that's the case, then all work in the world is sacred. It's not just being a pastor or some, you know, Mother Teresa or something else, but all work, all jobs, whether they're in you know, there's secular jobs, and there's, there's no distinction there, that all work is sacred because God has called you for this purpose that only you can fulfill God has called you, and that's your vocation, and your work is sacred. So if that's the case, and I asked you, what do you do? What's your job? Your answer would be, it's, it's a calling. And because of that, it's a calling from God. Your work is actually a part of God's work. In your work, in your vocation, you partner with God using all of your gifts and skills and talents and experiences and everything and every day and everything you go through and the thoughts and the, you know, the, the morning experience that you take to work with you, all of that is actually a part of God's work. Your work is a part of God's work. And so if you're going through workplace drama and you know, you, you've got a manager who has Michael Scott syndrome, who was promoted to his position of incompetence, that's what happened. Michael was a great salesman. So his company just kept promoting him and, and to the point that he couldn't do the job anymore. Maybe you feel that way, or it's a coworker or a family member. It's, maybe it's not even about work for you. And, and the drama is, is huge in your eyes. You feel it. It's just knots in your gut. And especially if it is job-related drama, then that's connected to finances, of course, and fear about that. And is there just something about like financial anxiety that just like, it just hits you in a different place in your gut than anything else? Isn't that true? It just, it just seems to threaten like our sense of survival. When, when you have workplace drama and you're just not sure how it's all going to turn out and you're like, oh, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And then it's tied to money and your sense of survival and being able to provide. And maybe for you, it just seems like this workplace drama is huge. Maybe it's dominating your life right now. 
or there's some interpersonal conflict that is just, you think of that as huge and your calling, if you've ever thought about your job as your calling at all, that would be just like small. The drama eclipses everything else. But what if, objectively, what if the truth is, it's actually reverse and your calling is huge. And this drama that you're facing is actually very small, even though you don't feel that way at all. But what if that's actually the truth? That your calling is so huge and expansive and empowering and inspiring and hope-giving and life-giving, and the drama is just tiny and pales in comparison to that. You don't feel that way. But what if objectively that's true? It would be true because your work is a part of God's work. What's God's work in the world? So we read in the, in the first few pages, Adam and Eve are in the garden. We talked about this a few months ago in our, in our In the Beginning series, and we don't look at it as a science textbook. There are room for, there's room for thinking people you know, to take the Bible seriously, and you can express your faith and your doubts, we say here. But we have Adam and Eve in the garden, and God gives them a job. Do you remember what God, God's job for them is? They're calling. They're to take care of the creation, aren't they? They're to take care of God's creation which says something about the way we treat creation around us, correct? The Adam and Eve are called to take care of God's creation. They're created in God's image, which in the ancient world meant they were God's VPs. And they are seen as our spiritual ancestors. Once again, questions and doubts welcome and science and faith and all these things. But we're looking at this story not as a science textbook, but for what it can tell us about us. It's like, it's like looking into a mirror. And, and they're called by God. They have this enormous calling to care for God's creation, They take their eyes off that, other things kind of seem bigger in their eyes, and and they eat the fruit, and there's the fall, and they're expelled from the garden. And one of the things God says to Adam is, you're going to continue working. Work was good. Like, I called you to work and take care of the garden. That's good. It's it's not like work is evil, like a result of the fall. Work is a good thing. But now it's just going to be harder in a fallen world. As you farm, because Adam was a farmer, you're going to have thorns and thistles that are going to grow up with your crops too. And by the sweat of your brow... And you'll work the land until you return to that dust. And, and, and there's this picture of work, where work is this good calling and its purpose and, and its meaning. And at the same time, it's, it's just made harder by the reality of working in, in this world. And then from then on, the rest of Scripture, the rest of the, of the biblical story, is about God redeeming the world. How God wants to use everything that happens to restore creation, to heal, to, in a sense, return us to the garden where we can live with har- in harmony with God and in harmony with other people again. And, and God can fix what's broken. And God can, can guide and heal and rescue and restore. And God will even use painful things that happen to us. We don't believe that God causes them, but God can use them in order to bring good things into our lives. God, God kind of like does judo. On, on evil things that happen, on painful things. And God can even take things that were, were horrible experiences, but God can wring some good out of them. And God can use that in God's redemptive purpose in the world. So that's God's work. And so if your work is a calling from God, then your work is a part of God's work, and God's work is, is redeeming the world. And so when you wake up in the morning, and you go clock in or whatever it is that you do, you are a part of God's work of God redeeming the world where you are. And that, that is a privilege. That's a high calling. And if that's the case, then, yeah, your calling is just huge 
all the possibilities, all of what could happen, the potential, the, the, the good things that could come out of that, the healing, how you can be a conduit for God to speak to your coworkers and people around you and management, and, and you can lead up and, and treat customers well, and, and, and you can just bring God's redemptive work through yourself into your work situation. If that's the case, then your calling is huge, and any drama we face is small, but of course, it doesn't feel that way. It's, it, there's some kind of a process of us getting to a, from a place where the drama is huge to where we, where we can see it in its proper perspective and see our calling as huge in contrast. When I was growing up, my aunt was uh, a great mentor to me. Um, she lived next door for part of the time, like during my teenage years. And, you know, when I needed to talk, I went to her. And she didn't have any kids of her own, but she was like a second mom to me and to other people in our family. And, and even, you know, up until recent times, she volunteered in Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And she was just a mentor to people. She just, she was, that was her gift. That was part of her calling. That she, was, she was a mentor. And when I was learning to drive, she was the one who took me out to teach me how to drive. And she had this Ford Splash truck. Does anybody remember those? We're going back to the early 90s for this, and the, it was like a bright red little truck, and it had like the quarter panels over the back tires were flared out, if you remember what that looked like. It was this really cool-looking truck. I thought it was awesome, and, and um, she was extra brave. Like, there was extra courage in her calling because it was a stick shift, and so I learned to drive on her, her new, shiny, bright red Ford Splash stick shift, and, and some people are blessed with hand-eye coordination. I'm not necessarily one of those people when it comes to tasks like driving a stick shift. I learned to love it, actually, but not at the time. It didn't come naturally to me. So she probably didn't realize what she was in store or what was in store for her when she took me out to drive. And so I remember starting the engine and immediately stalling it, like zoom and stall. And, and I just learned, you know, or had to take a long time to learn, wait, you got to kind of keep your foot on the clutch just perfectly. you got to find where the clutch disengages. And, and I just stalled the truck over and over and over again. And it was probably 30 minutes, and we moved 10 feet. And, and, but she never, got, she never got upset. She didn't yell at me. And she just let me learn. And I remember, you know, maybe, I don't even know if we got out on the road the first time. I, I'm not sure. But we were getting out on the road and, and trying to keep the, the truck in between the lines, which is important. And, and realizing, man, this car is coming at me, and if, if, I, if I'm not careful, like, if I go over that line, this is, like, this is a real position of responsibility, yes, but a position of power. It was, I just remember thinking, I remember driving down the road and thinking, this is what it feels like to be in the driver's seat. Like, I've been in the passenger seat my whole life. And this is different. This is what it feels like to be in control of this thing. This is what it feels like to be in the driver's seat. I remember that, that realization, the empowerment that I felt. Like, I was scared, too. But the empowerment that I, that I remember feeling from, like, I'm controlling this thing right now. And if you're facing workplace drama, or there is some interpersonal conflict that is just tearing you up, you may be in a place where it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. You're just like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. There's just no way I can, I can deal with this. What if it's true that your work is a calling, and because of that, your work is a part of God's work? And if that's the case, then you are partnering with God. 
That's what, you, that's what your real job is. You're partnering with God, and if that's the case, then, yeah, I mean, I guess God's ultimately in the driver's seat, but when it comes to difficulty that you're facing at work or the people around you or your boss or, really, you're in the driver's seat. If that's what your work means, think about, I mean, that's not how people view their work. In our world, they just, it's, some people love their jobs, half don't. Some people view it as drudgery. If you go into your workplace with a sense of calling, that you are a part of God's redemptive purpose in the world, you are in a place of power now. You're in the driver's seat now because you're like one of maybe nobody else in your company that is viewing their, their work like that. You're in a place of power, even if you don't feel like it, even if it's stressed you out and torn you up and tied your stomach in knots, you're in the driver's seat now. You're partnering with God and God's work in the world. And so when, you, when you're partnering with God, things like this come into effect, where Jesus says in Matthew 6, for the pagans, people who don't know God, they run after, they chase after money. They frantically panic, panicked and chase after Money and clothing and food and what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? And what if my boss doesn't like me? And what if I lose my job? And what if I take a pay cut? And, and what, if I, what if I'm viewed as a troublemaker? And what if somebody else doesn't like me? And they play office politics and it's just this, this, this frantic clawing for survival. Jesus says, you're not called to live that way. You, you, God has a different calling for you. You're partnering with God in, in, in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things that people frantically chase over will be given to you as well. He says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, when, you're, when your work is a part of God's work and you're in the driver's seat now, you can say things like that. You know what? I'm, just, I'm not going to be filled with anxiety about what's going to happen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, God's leadership and guidance and doing what's right in my environment. Even when it's difficult, I'm just going to choose this place of power because I'm, I'm in the driver's seat. And as an empowered person in, a, in the driver's seat now, I have the ability to choose how I'm going to respond when my manager does this or my coworker does this or the customer does this or the, the new policy goes into effect and it's ridiculous. And I just have the power to choose how I'm going to respond to that. Nobody's, there's, no, there's no such thing as forcing me to do something because I'm not full of anxiety and worthy. I'm in the driver's seat now because my work is a part of God's work. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. God, you know what? This is, a, this is a rough situation. So just lift those up to him. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it doesn't make sense, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If your work is a part of God's work and, and you're in the driver's seat and you're empowered because of that, you're partnering with God and God is with you, you, you can lift those requests to God and you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. You don't have to be all torn up by the drama. You don't have to get dragged down in it either. You're in a place of power and you can see your calling is huge and this drama as small. And if that's the case, then Jesus gives us a formula. In Matthew 18, for dealing with workplace drama or any kind of conflict, if it's a family member, maybe it has nothing to do with work for you. Maybe it's, it's a, a friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your ex-spouse. Maybe it's a child. What do you do when there's drama, when there's interpersonal conflict? How do you deal with that? Jesus actually gives us a formula in Matthew chapter 18. He says, it'll be on the screen for you. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. 
So step one is you just go to that person and talk to them. He says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. No more drama. And it worked. Great. And we can move on. He's, in verse 16, he says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along. And, and just talk it out with one or two people there so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Take some, peop- take some people along with you to be witnesses. And if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I love the ending, a tax collector. You know, um, and so, and even there, yeah, the relationship is broken. But if you read the rest of the, the Gospels, how does Jesus feel about pagans and tax collectors? Well, he, he, he wants their redemption. So it, the relationship isn't, it's not working right now, but it's, the door is open to reconciliation whenever possible. So he just gives a simple formula. And I think if you're at work, it looks like this. Well, you go and talk to the source of the drama. And if that doesn't work, then I suppose, well, then you alert management or HR. And if your manager's part of the problem, then maybe you can talk directly to the manager. And if that doesn't work, you go to HR. And if there's still no solution, then, then the work relationship ends. And you might look at that and you're like, well, Ryan, that's basically my HR policy. So thanks, man. Thanks for the sermon today. But let's be, let's be honest, though. When you, and I've been here many times, when you and I feel torn up by... Workplace drama, family drama, um, some relationship that is broken, that's strained, and there's been pain, and you're just all torn up in knots, and you talk to your friends, and you kind of vent to your friends, which is a good thing, and you tell them how, you know, how terrible this is, and how you don't know what to do, and what do you think I should do, and, and I talk to this person over here, and all these family members agree with me, or these people in the office agree with me, and we have alliances formed already, and, and we're just all torn up about it. What is often the case? We haven't even taken step one yet. Isn't that true? I mean, we're all conflict-averse, most of us. Um, Most of us don't want to have to deal with this stuff. We don't want to have tough conversations with people. We're afraid of the repercussions. What if I do talk to my manager? Then what? What if they view me as a troublemaker? What if I'm really on the blacklist now? Like, then what? And, And we just, so often, we go through this, I mean, just tortured with, with all kinds of anxiety, and we can't even sleep at night, and it goes on for months, and we have no idea what to do, and the truth is, we haven't even taken step one yet. So maybe, for you, it re- step one is step one. Maybe after all this time, maybe it really does look like going to the source of the drama. If it's a coworker, maybe it does look like this. You know what? You and I don't get along that well. We both know it. We have to work here. We want to live in peace. You know, is it me? Did I do something? Did I say something? Did I do something? Hey, I respect you. Maybe we can take a minute and talk it out. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. But at least you tried. Maybe it's, it's at least a step. Or if it's, if it's the manager, I, you know, I want to do a good job here. And how, how can I succeed? What does success look like to you? And now maybe you haven't taken that step. Maybe you have. And it just hasn't helped. But if you haven't, step one is step one. And it, there might be some solution that actually is a, is a part of your huge calling. That because of your courage to take step one, now God can work in a redemptive way in your work environment. Maybe even work in your manager's life. Maybe work in a coworker's life. I remember a, a, a colleague I had, this was probably 20 years ago, I was an intern, he was the music director at a church. It was a church with a choir. And he was, he was kind of this known, big shot, choir director in, in that world, even though it probably sounds funny, but in that world he was. And, 
And he and I went out to lunch one day, and we were talking about leadership. And I wanted to learn from him, and he said that one of the first lessons he learned as a, as a choir director, and think about it, that person manages, I mean, I think he probably had 50 people in his choir. That's a, that's a lot of leadership and management responsibility. And he said one of the first lessons he learned was that he, as a musician, he prided himself on being perfectionistic. And it worked for him. He was really good. And he said, you know, when it was just me, I paid a toll for it, honestly, yeah, my perfectionism, but, he, but there was like a huge payoff. But I brought that perfectionism to my leadership of this choir. And he said, I would just come down too hard on people. I, I had demands that were just beyond. I mean, they all knew they needed to practice and be good, but I just, I just pushed them too far. And I didn't know it at the time. And he said, you know, one or two people kind of started to leave and, and make excuses like, yeah, I'm just so busy and, and uh, I just can't be a part of the choir anymore. And he's like, then the excuses just got thinner and thinner. You know, like, oh, I've got a roast in the oven. I can't be a part of the choir anymore. And he's like, oh, you know, okay, like, is, that's not really a reason. So what's, and he said, finally, there was this choir member who had enough courage to view their calling to bring good things into the world and partner with God as bigger than their fear of ticking him off or the drama. And he said, this choir member came to me and he said, people are quitting just because you're so perfectionistic. And you drive us really hard, and you're really good, and we like having you here, but it's, just, it's a little much at times. And he said at first that was hard to hear. Of course, it's always hard to hear feedback. But he reflected on it, and he's like, yeah, I don't think they quit because they had a roast in the oven. It made, something else is going on. And he said, I had to realize that you know, management and leadership is the people business. And it's not, just, it's not just me. It's not a solo sport here. That part of management and leadership is grace and giving recognition and praise, and that's all people want anyway. People will put up with all kinds of stuff. If they can just get credit for what they do, and, and out of boys, out of girls, do, you know, thank you for your work, and you did a great job here, and that's what people really need. And he said that was one of the hardest lessons that he ever learned, but he learned it because one of his choir members saw their calling as big, and their fear and their anxiety of, of repercussions as small. So maybe that would be you. Maybe you could help your manager or your coworker. Or if you are a manager or a leader, maybe that gives some insight into what's going on in, in your team. Maybe, maybe step one for you is step one. Now, maybe you've tried that. Or maybe other people have tried that and you've watched heads roll and you're like, ah, I don't think I want to be the fifth person to, you know, to be cut off by, by you know, confronting this. There is a time to leave. There is a time. Um, now, remember the saying, never, never quit one job until you have another one. That's, that's good advice. Hopefully that's possible. But there, there does come a time when it is time to leave a job and move on to something else. Um, maybe you've already tried this. Again, you've seen other people try it. Maybe the environment is so unhealthy that you're like, you know, I don't even know where I would start. I'm just not a fit here. And, and you're realizing that this thing is stealing your joy. That you're not really available to your family or your friends the way you should be. You're, even if you're, if you're a single person, when you're alone, you just feel like, I'm not me. This is just not the life that, that I want to live. And, and I know that it's why. And, and this is why. And I just feel like, you know, step one's not really going really to fix the problem. Well, there is a time to leave. Um, I had a situation like this, uh, where I had a boss who was dictatorial, and 
um, that infected the entire organization. And the people who were happy there, or at least seemed to be happy there, were the Dwight Schrutes, you know, who were happy being sycophants and just kind of putting up with that and being treated like a, like a slave. And, and I realized, you know, my joy is gone. It's hard to get out of bed. I dread meetings. I don't even want to see this person. Like, I, I see my manager, and I just want to, like, walk the other direction. And, and this is just not a way to live. And so I, I followed some good advice. I interviewed for another job. I got hired for the job. I put in my two weeks' notice. I was, you know, classy on the way out. God bless you. Didn't burn any bridges. And the difficult part of that was that I took a $20,000 pay cut to go to that new job. For me, $20,000 a year is huge. That's a, that's a really, really big deal. And my struggle, and I, and I struggle with it for months and months, and just feeling miserable because of this workplace drama was, should I... Should I hold on to a job that pays more money where I'm miserable or should I go to a job where I'm going to be happier and more sane and take a pay cut? That was my decision. Now, last weekend, I took my son to Dad and Me Camp, which we've, we've gone to for three years now, up in, on Mingus Mountain, and it's an amazing time. We love it. And he was hanging out with some other boys around his age, and I overheard them playing Would You Rather. You know, the would you rather game where you, you, there's a question and there's like a choice to make. And usually the, the, the choice is like something that's a hard decision. Like, you, you, would you rather know when you're going to die or how you're going to die? And you're supposed to just like reflect over that. The, these boys, you know, like eight, they didn't quite get it. And one, I overheard one boy, he's like, would you rather go on a vacation or have your eye poked out by a nail? And the other boys, like there was some silence and one of the boys like, I'm going to go with vacation. Like he thought about it. And like he, that's the decision that I'm going to make based on, on your presentation of the choices that I have. And, and so, you know, they just, it was a bad would you rather game. Now, if the, if the question for us is, okay, do I take a job where I'm miserable and I make less money or do I take a job where I'm happy and I make more money? If that's the question, well, that's a pretty easy question for us. But in the Southeast Valley... If the question is, do I take a job where I'm miserable and I make good money, or do I go to a job where I'm happy and I take a pay cut? For us, that's like a really hard question. That's a question that keeps people trapped in drama where there may not really be a solution. And at that point, the big calling for your life actually might be, well, it's time to go. And, and take my talents to South Beach, you know, as LeBron said back in the day, I'm just going to go live out my calling in, in a place where I can really live it out because here it's just too toxic, I've tried. So sometimes that's the decision. But to Jesus, that question of do I make good money and be miserable or do I take a pay cut and be sane, get off the crazy train, to Jesus, that's like a bad would-you-rather question. That's like, would you rather go on vacation or have your, nail, or your eye poked out with a nail? To Jesus, that's just a bad would-you-rather question because Jesus says things like this, Mark chapter 8, what good is it for somebody? Or the old King James said, what would it profit a person? To gain the whole world, this will, this will be on the screen, what, what good would it be for somebody to gain the whole world, all the money in the world, and forfeit their soul. 
what good would it be? What, would, what profit would it be? What would you gain if you had all the money in the world? We're not just talking about Jeff Bezos, $100 billion, the richest man in the world. That, this, we're not, that's, that's nothing. All of the money in the world and yet forfeited their own soul. Or what could anybody possibly give in exchange for their soul? Soul in Greek, this was written in Greek, soul is the word psyche, it's where we get psyche, psychology. What would it profit a person? What gain would there possibly ever be in getting all of the money in the world and yet giving up your soul, your psychology, your mental and emotional well-being, the real you, the you that God has called to partner with God in God's redemptive work in the world. That's this huge, amazing calling like Adam and Eve had. What good could it possibly do you if your paycheck was all the money in the world and you were miserable at it? And it was a terrible environment that stole your joy. Jesus says things like that. And so what to us seems like a difficult question If you tried everything else, step one and step two didn't work, or other people have and you saw the results. And it really comes down to the choice, well, do I be miserable and make money, more money, or do I go be happy and take a pay cut? To Jesus, that's not a hard question. Now, it's totally understandable why that's a hard question to you and me. Because we have all kinds of fear and anxiety around finances that we'll talk about next week. And at the same time, Jesus says things like we read earlier, uh, Matthew 6, um, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, that people frantically chase, and they get get in the hamster wheel, the rat race of life, and and office politics, and drama, but you, you have a calling that is above that. And by the way, if you're somebody who's, who gives to the well, and you're thinking, you know, if I took a pay cut, I would give less money to the well then I would say take the pay cut and give less money to the well. Because God has a calling on you, and, and it's, it's this amazing, huge, expansive calling, and God has not called you to be miserable in a toxic environment. Now, if God wants you to stay for a while and maybe change that, great. Maybe that's your calling. But maybe it's not. Maybe the calling is to move on. And now we've all had the experience of like a friend talks to you about this, about their workplace drama or, or just some situation, and, and they're just all torn up about it, and they explain the situation. And you're thinking in your head, like, actually, the solution's pretty easy. You had that experience, right? Like, you can clearly see it because you're, you're emotionally not tied to what they're going through. Like, it's a pretty, pretty easy answer, actually. You, you don't say it like that, of course. But, but you can see it clearly because you're not feeling the emotion they're feeling. What often makes these decisions so hard and miserable is the emotion that's tied up into it. And we're just not sure what to do because of all the anxiety and fear and what am I going to do and what are people going to think of me and what are my family members going to do. And, you know, it's just there's so much that gets tangled up. One of the things that has helped me and a lot of people, and I'm sure some of you could attest to this as well, is if you can do something to untangle the emotion that you feel, the fear, the anxiety, the you're just beat down, you're worn down after months or years of, of the drama, and if you could do something that would help you tease apart the emotion, the fear, the worry from the actual facts. And what has God called you to? 
what is this calling for you? What are your, what are your gifts and skills and your personality and your experiences and your education? And how could God focus that? And how could God call you to use that somewhere? Maybe if you could just find some way to, to just kind of untangle the emotion from the facts. That can help you see, you know, is it time to, to take step one and talk to somebody? Or is it time to maybe change jobs? I'm going to close with this. Um, I do a really great impression of a 42-year-old white suburban man. And just to prove it, I'm going to show you a video of Chris Martin from Coldplay. It's an interviewer like two or three years ago. And he's just kind of seen as a positive, upbeat guy. And the interviewer of this morning show, one of these highly caffeinated morning shows, asked you know, um, Chris Martin, you seem to be so positive all the time. How is it that you and all the, you know, the, the, the stress of fame and all this kind of stuff, and paparazzi and all that. Like, how, how is it that you're just so much happier than a lot of other celebs who come in here? And this is what Chris Martin had to say. Let's check it out. I have to make an observation. I, I love this. I think everyone in the room will agree. We interview a lot of people. Lot how many of, people a day? Uh, 30, 40, 50 <laughs> people a day. But what I have found to be so true about you <clears throat> and Coldplay yeah. is you have come to a place in your career, in your lives, I'm assuming, where you seem to be enjoying it. Yes. You don't seem to get bothered by the, the minutia, the things that are like, ugh. Things that a lot of artists still are uptight about. You guys just kind of let it roll and you're like, hey, let's just hang out and have a good time. Is that where you feel like you are in your life and, in, and with the band? Well, I have two, part, two answers. Okay. The first is, yes, there's definitely an element as you get older, I'm sure you know, of like just being grateful for the job. And, you know, things brush off a little easier. But I'm a human and so negative stuff definitely affects me right i just i've learned over the years a few tricks of how to you know basically it's the same as when you're at school and someone's a bit mean or they won't let you sit next to them at lunch or whatever you just have to learn how to handle that you know, you, does you, anyone else yeah, yeah. Does anyone else not get but allowed I, to sit on the you, table you choose you choose how you handle things it's up if, if someone you choose how you handle yeah I'm what sorry. is your trick for, for if you have a day where you're just like uh today is the worst what's your trick for pulling yourself back into a good place. I mean, this is, I'll tell you, Einstein and a lot of writers used to do a thing called freeform writing, where for 12 minutes you just vent on paper and then you rip it up and throw it away or burn it. Are there rules to the venting? I mean, you can do this, you, you can, can do say that. anything. Anything. So, for example, I do it most mornings, you know. Right. Ah, I, I hate this, I hate that. Blah, blah, blah. I feel terrible as my nose looks terrible. Whatever it might be. <laughs> I have to go see Elvis. It's really, it's really, it's really helped me, I've got to say. So you, that's you, why I'm happy to talk about it. You truly purge negativity. It's called purge. Yeah, purge writing, that's what it's called. Wow. And wow. a lot of authors do it in the beginning of the morning to clear their head and then write about Hogwarts. Yeah, so I'm not a counselor. We have counselors in the church. And if you, you think you would benefit from talking to somebody, I could refer you to one of those people. And so I'm not a, I'm not a clinical counselor in recommending this, but it's something that I've tried as well at different times in my life, and it's, it's been helpful to me. And uh, apparently it's helpful to Chris Martin. And so um, what he's talking about is sitting down in the morning, if you're really going to stick to the, the actual technique of purge writing, sitting down in the morning, and you set a timer for 12 minutes, and it's not electronic, it's paper and pen. And because there's something physical, you can be aggressive. You know, if you just type really hard, it's just not quite the same effect. You, and you take a pen and you write. And there's no edit button whatsoever. You just, you just write your feelings. If it's work drama, then obviously that's what you're going to write about. Or whatever it is, and you're just, and you're just you know, pushing, pushing holes through the paper practically. 
writing down all of your negative feelings, no edit button, no, well, I shouldn't feel that way, that's not a good Christian way to feel, none of that. You're just, you're just writing with no edit button, and you're just going, bleh. You're just, you're all of the emotion that you feel and that you're carrying with you anyway, that is, that is stealing your joy and making you miserable, you just get all that down on the paper. And then again, if you're going to be true to the technique, you would either rip it up into pieces, or if you really want to be legit, as they say, you burn it. You know, we live in a desert, so you know, you use your own discretion, however you do that. But, but the act of writing it, and then burning it, or, or ripping it up, says, you know, these are emotions that are, that are a part of my life, but I'm getting them out, and they don't hold power over me. I'm getting them out, and they're not going to, they're not going to take away my view of this incredible calling I have. And the, and the joy that I have in my life, I'm just going to get it out and, and get rid of it and express it. And this is for me, speaking for me. When I have done this, uh, I did it this week. For me, even before the 12 minutes is up, this may not be the case for you, it just depends. But even before the 12 minutes is up, I start finding myself writing things like, you know what, and I'm also thankful for this. <laughs> and, and I'm just glad that this has worked out. And so I go from like, to like, oh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really grateful. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm still pressing really hard. Well, I'm thankful. Why am I pressing so hard? But, I, but it, there's a transition that takes place. That all these things, I have negative emotion around all these things, and they really bother me. But there's also this realization that, wait a second, as I get this out, there's catharsis. You heard that term. It means cleansing. It means you're, you're, you're able to acknowledge what's really going on and it's not you're not alone anymore it's not just in there like secret hidden pain like a lonely journey that you have to go through but it's out and you've named it and then there's something about that process maybe that won't happen for you I, I don't know but you do that for 12 minutes and you get it all out and then you destroy that paper where nobody would ever see it you don't have to worry about editing because nobody's ever going to see it and maybe that would be helpful to you. There, there are techniques, other techniques, I'm sure, that counselors would, would recommend to you. Maybe not this one, maybe something else. But maybe for you, seeing your drama as small and your calling as huge starts like just getting it out. And that helps you to untangle the emotion, the pain that you feel from the facts of what is actually happening. And then you find that, wait, now my, my path is getting a lot clearer. God has this amazing calling for my life, whatever it is. And I don't have to be trapped in this, in this misery of workplace drama or whatever it is, drama in family or friendships, whatever it is. I can, I can enjoy the calling that God has for my life because my work is a part of God's work, which means that my work is now, I'm, I'm a conduit for God's redemptive work in the world. If it's my manager or my coworker or my ex-spouse, or whatever it is, my work is part of God's work. And I, I'm in the driver's seat. I have the power to not be torn up with anxiety, but to let God flow through me and, and accomplish God's work through me.